Hey, what's up? It's your girl Enchantress, poetess and interdisciplinary media extraordinaire. Stay tuned for Hidden Treasure, where we shine the light on the gems in our own backyard. It's going to be hard, but for this particular episode, I am going to try my hardest. I know I have conveyed to y'all before, like, when I feel like I'm in quote-unquote intellectual spaces, and that means even when I'm mentally preparing myself to talk about topics I consider to be um, governing mental matters, it's very difficult for me to not co-switch. And I feel like for this particular episode, um, like it's imperative that I don't. And it's I and and I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna show, I'm gonna show you, or not even necessarily show you, but I'm gonna tell you later on why I say that because I do be feeling like sometimes, like, like especially with the partner that I have now. Because I consider him mixed company. I think my, my mind, my brain registers him as mixed company. So I try, even when even when I'm in intimate spaces with my partner, I won't call, I cold switch. And um, I actually confided in him about that. And I guess now it bothers him because he feels like I'm not um, comfortable with him. But it's not, I feel like it's beyond that. It's... Just that because people have constantly put in black people's mind that we have to, you know, basically change ourselves in order to serve other people. You know, we have to speak in a way that other people understand. We have to move in ways in which other people understand. Like, I feel like I have to constantly defend um, myself as a as an intellectual as a as a folklorist, as an anthropologist, people as a black as a black non male individual who is engaging in these spaces, I have difficulty being taken seriously. So I have learned to language in a way that other people can't help but to respect me, if that makes sense. But for this particular episode and for the future I feel like it's imperative that I really walk the walk and talk the talk at the same time. So, as I've stated, we're going to be talking about Ntozaki Shange. Um, we're going to be talking about black feminisms. And, of course, we're going to be talking about who you already know. Um, but what's different about this episode compared to past episodes is that um, typically I don't speak, as I've said, I don't speak in ways that are definitive. Um, I talk about my own personal experiences, but in this case, I am drawing on the experience of somebody who had, who, who lived longer, lived to 70. And like they say, you don't get to live in that long unless you know some things. So basically what I'm saying is listen to her. <laughs> listen to me. listen to Mama Gay, okay? That's what I'm saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. Okay, she knows some things. So this is based this is literally drawn. This is this is taken out of this is knowledge taken out of her book. 
out of her books, her works, period, plural. Um, so this is not just solely my thoughts. This is just me having read and digested these particular texts, taking it to to y'all, sharing the knowledge that I have learned from studying the folk to y'all, the folk, <laughs> from studying past folk to stu- from studying our ancestors to y'all. Um, I feel like, and this this actually plays into the code switching thing. I feel like there has been a lot of discourse lately about how black people should show up in the world. Um, I posted something a few days ago and it was talking about how people, um, like, you know, the whole you talk white thing. And now this does not in any way, shape or form, does this refer to, um, you know what, I was going to say this doesn't refer to people who have grown up in spaces um, where they were quote-unquote taught to, you know, talk proper. But I feel like even that's incorrect. Because I feel like black people are not interested in learning our language. And I really mean that. Black people are not, and and people act like this, because this is my thing, y'all. Y'all know people right now, it's indigenous people right now, it's it's Hawaiian people right now who are studying their indigenous languages. There are people right now who are actively seeking to preserve and to learn their indigenous languages. And black people are not interested in that. We're not interested in, and I'm not, I'm not talking about just in text, I'm not talking about just in, in online spaces, I'm saying in spaces, period, in intellectual spaces, in spaces with quote-unquote mixed company, in all spaces, we are not interested in reclaiming our languages. Black people ain't out here learning Gullah Geechee. Black people ain't out here learning the tongues of the people who've come before us. I'm talking about the 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 quote-unquote Creole languages, the quote-unquote dialects of our people. We are not interested in speaking AAV when it doesn't serve us. We also participate in the commodification of our language, of our culture. It's cute when it's online, but we don't feel comfortable talking in our language in spaces that that don't support it, that don't praise it. You hear what I'm saying? And I know this is not a popular opinion. I know it's not. I know people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that (laughs) maybe assimilation ain't the answer. That talking in ways that, and, and matter of fact, considering, even thinking that that Bukra English, that the, the English, you know, spoken by white folk is articulate and our language isn't. And I really want us to sit with that. I really do. Because first of all, let's just talk about it. American English is knockoff British English. So the British could argue that, guess what? 
y'all folks ain't as articulate as us. <laughs> I don't even know why I said that because they ain't got nothing to do. They don't got nothing to do with the price of tea in China. They <laughs> really don't. <laughs> I just feel like saying that. I just had to. I had not Americans down a few pigs. I had not white Americans down a few pigs. But anyways, but no, seriously, y'all. Like, I feel like. And, and it honestly, it wasn't even the um remove the, you know, you talk white phrase from your language that pissed me off. It was the explanation that they offered at the bottom, talking about intellect and, and, and intelligence and, and all of this other shit. Like, um, absolutely the fuck not. Because talking in AAV don't say nothing about your intelligence. I am very fucking intelligent. Y'all know that, bitch. I, I don't care. I ain't got time for humility today, period. I don't. I am very fucking intelligent. I am very fucking brilliant. I am as far as as when it when it comes to to language. I am very good at picking up languages. I am very good at you know emulating language. That is the reason again why I got so good at code switching and why it's so hard for me to divest from that because of the fact that I am very good at at picking up and, and copying the thing, the the behaviors, the characteristics, the tongues of other people in order to to fit. I know how to make myself small to fit in spaces that aren't meant for me. And again, as we're talking about how black people should show up in this world, I feel like code switching respectability politics, um, just the performances that black people put on to, I mean, and I will say, I will argue that it is for the sake of survival. There are repercussions for us participating in our own culture, especially when it's not being profited off of. When it's not being commodified. However, drawing on the work of Sean Gay, she brings up a a brilliant point about the future of black people. And the fact that if we don't engage in rituals, I'm saying, y'all, listen, hear me out. (laughs) If we don't, as a people, engage in rituals that empower us to advocate for the liberation of black people, of black non-men, of black men, and inherently the collective of, of everyone, then we are going to suffer we can't the, the way that we have been going on is not sustainable it's not it is not white people european people have showed us time and time again it don't matter how articulate quote unquote you sound which really means how how white you sound sorry y'all i know y'all don't want to hear that but it's true everything in in this world especially in the west is measured by systems of whiteness and that includes what languages are acceptable 
that includes what languages are considered to be intelligent or signs of intelligence. And I think also we, we need to look at, at Trisha Hersey in the Nat Ministry and how her work sits at the intersection of art and activism. Her performance art of black people taking up space and sleeping in public spaces is a performance. And it also is a message. It also it is, is resistance. And I feel like we need to apply that to our daily life. And that begins with me. Because anything I'm telling y'all, I promise you, anything I'm telling y'all is something that I am working on myself. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I don't always do the right thing. But I try my best to live my life. I, I am dedicated to living my life in a way that honors all black people. And that includes the ones who aren't as good as me. Because, you know, we have various intelligence. And other people are, are better at other things than me. But not everybody has the ability, the, the linguist abilities of some of us. And not everybody has as easy as a time code switching and fitting in to white corporate spaces because of it. There are many of us who are denied access to opportunities because we as a collective allow them, allow Europeans to use that as a means to, to, to keep them from spaces. As long as we are participating in code switching, as long as we are uplifting the idea that European language, that the way that Europeans talk is articulate, is the only uh, intelligent way of, you know, basically sharing messages, uh, of, of conveying information, then we are oppressing our own people and ourselves. We are having to diminish pieces of ourselves and we are diminishing our people. And that's just facts. Argue with your mom about it. Okay? Um, <laughs> I lost my whole train of thought. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So yeah. Like, really, as I'm saying, I feel like we draw on European cultural values in order to inform us on how to propel ourselves into the future in order to shape our and improve our black future. But I want to challenge that. And I want us to instead look at the works of our black mothers and our black feminist thinkers. Cuz I think it was some it was some men and it was some people who weren't women who also looked at the world through a feminist lens. But Particularly, we talk about Shangay, so she a woman. So I want us to look at, I want us to look to our black mother for inspiration on how to move forward. 
And in our future, I do see us. I changed my mind. There was a period of time when I said I don't see black people performing. But I changed my mind. I do see black people performing. Not in a way that benefits white systems and white supremacy, but in a way that benefits us. I think it's important that we engage in performances such as the ones demonstrated by Trisha Hersey, that we engage in rituals that liberate us. Specifically, I want to talk about our interpersonal relationships. As I was just saying, for me, a way that I am liberating myself is going out of my way to speak in the tongue that is natural to me, in the tongue that I have inherited, not the voice that my parents put on when they was answering phone calls and in classrooms, but the voice that they had, that the language that they spoke in when they were in intimate spaces. So talking in mixed company in my indigenous, my mother tongue. And not only that, but further to to further interrogate the ways that white supremacy, that patriarchy, that queer phobia, transphobia, and misogynoir uh, manifests itself in our interpersonal relationships. I feel like one of those, particularly for me, has been interrogating the culture of silence that Black people have assimilated into. Rather than our indigenous culture of confrontation. I've noticed that there's a phrase that is spoken a lot in black households. What happens in this house stays in this house. But I want to remind us that that is not ours to claim. As I discussed in the previous episode, confrontation is the backbone of of society, of the society of African descended people in order to address grievances, in order to make sure that everybody in the community was doing their part, in order to make sure that everybody's needs were met, confrontation was necessary. And I'm going to tell y'all a personal story and anecdote. I talked about it you know, with a few, I, yeah, I put on my close friends. <laughs> but recently, I thought I was going to leave that, man. But recently, I got into a very heated discussion, a very heated argument with my current partner. Um, And I felt like, in, in many ways, he was being very anti-black because he is Indian. He was being very anti-black. He was being very, um, what is it? Misogynistic. Just very trifling towards me. And the way that I have been taught by my mother 
by my father is to pretty much suffer in silence, to not say anything when I am being harmed, when I am experiencing emotional harm, when I am, you know, um, not pleased with someone. And honestly, to wait until it boils over to say something. And in this particular instance, I felt like I was, in my mind, thinking about the things that I have discussed in the past, particularly about how when black women felt slighted in relationships, they went to the women in their lives. And the women in their lives got them hype and got hype themselves and decided that they would address those men. And they would all surround them and express those grievances. That women, that woman, with the support of the other women around her, would confront that that person who had the offender, the person who had caused them harm. And also, in marriages. Families would come together, the the family of the person who had been harmed would confront the other family. And the families would come together to reach a resolution. And that inspired me in my personal relationship, in this intimate relationship, to confront my partner. <laughs> And initially, it was a mess. It was very ghetto. <laughs> there were some things that weren't too kind that were exchanged. But in the end, a resolution and apologies were made. And my point is, because I think also I have been learning or, or trying to humanize black black men you know they are yes perpetuators of harm and abusers but often they are abused themselves and I want to hold compassion I want to hold space for them and their healing while also in prioritizing in centering the people that they've harmed and the people that they have perpetuated violence against. And I think one of the ways that I'm doing that is, yes, black women have been, and black non-men have been taught that their, their beauty, their sexuality is something to be feared, is dangerous. But also, black men have been socialized to be threats. They don't come out that way. They aren't born that way. They have been socialized into being threats to women. Um, so, I say that to say that it's important for us to remember 
really to just work on, on, yes, work on conflict resolution. And that doesn't mean that you have to personally hold space for the people who have abused you. You don't. If someone has caused harm to you, you do not have to hold space for them. But people in the community have to come together and figure out how we are going to get that person to atone for the harm that they have caused. How we are going to meet the needs, meet the the prerequisites for healing for the person that has been harmed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Y'all, I got notes, but like, I, I really be going off on tangents sometimes in my mind. It just be going so fast, but, but yeah. So engaging in daily, in a daily, advocate for yourself. Use your mouth. Use your mouth. Use your speech to advocate for yourself in your personal relationships. And it sounds easy, but it's very difficult, especially for those of us who have been basically conditioned in this culture of silence to divest from that. But that's a part of the work of decolonization. Um, I want to move on now. I also, you know what? Oh, mm, let me stop lying. Okay, y'all, because I have to say this too. Um, I watched the new Suicide Squad the other day. And for some reason, the the character of the starfish, she barely had any lines. They barely had any lines. But the character of the starfish really, I really felt that. And I had a thought as I was watching the, the movie. And it's related to my last point. And it was basically like the reason why people are so committed to systems of harm is because we can't imagine ourselves outside of them. Our identity, our self-worth is wrapped up in systems of harm. So our mind and our neural systems perceive the violence against these violent systems as violence against us. And y'all may be thinking, how the fuck does she get that from watching that dang old movie? But it was because the starfish was connected to the host. And so the host felt everything that the starfish felt, just as the starfish felt the things that the host felt. And really, white supremacy and all of its other byproducts, it's a virus. It's a virus. It's it's a, a entity that feeds upon that feeds upon people us that feeds upon black people that we've internalized that we host and our identity in many ways our self-worth is wrapped up in them we know our place in the world because of white supremacy so it's hard for us to imagine our place in the world outside of it James Baldwin had said something like that before. To he he challenged black people to imagine ourselves without enemies. 
to imagine ourselves outside of these violent systems. Seriously, do you really think that you would code switch? If if you do you really think that you would, would care about respectability politics, about wearing a bonnet in public? If it wasn't for the fact that these systems of violence have told you that that's unacceptable. Anyways, moving forward. <laughs> um, I also want uh, to encourage y'all, based upon the epistemology of Shanghai, to study and engage in the force of the erotic. She had very specific... And, and I guess these, these aren't... Um, exact rituals but these are just general ideas of what your ritual should address I guess but um she had things that or her characters had things that she did when her cycle came on there were things that she said to herself that she spoke over herself when her cycle came on when she first began her cycle one of the the women, one of the, one of her elders, bathed her with a very special bath, and then sent her into the woods naked to bleed freely, as she put it, among God's other beautiful creations. So, engage and study the force of the erotic, and create rituals to supplement that. We talk a lot about tantric sex. We talk a lot about the Kami Sutra. And we don't talk about the hoodoo love and sex rituals that we are already familiar with. We already, and, and my thing is, really, really, we really do, we know our, we know our things, okay? <laughs> I'm trying to tell y'all. I am trying to tell y'all. I feel like, and honestly, okay, let me... Let me clarify that love and, well, particularly sex, is only a a small force of the erotic. The erotic is much bigger than that. The erotic is really the force of, really the ashe. Let me, let me go to another note that I said the other day. Because it's really, it's really about, it's really about ashe. I said, sex is more than an act or something you do. It's a place to give yourself permission and safety to go to. It's a journey. The erotic is an energy, the channeling of ashe or creation energy. That's really what it is. The erotic is creation energy. The erotic is when we create, is when we paint, is when we write something. Is when we make love. Is when we garden. It's when we commune with our spirits. Um, that also brings me to another point. I know it, it probably seemed like my thoughts are not connected, but I swear they are, y'all. <laughs> I swear. I'm just very, very probably neurodivergent. But it also reminded me the the okay if you want to look if you want to think about the erotic in a sense that isn't necessarily sexual i really really recommend y'all to watch steven universe 
to watch Steven Universe and Steven Universe Future and to, to study the concept of fusion. And this is also a concept. This is not a concept that is indigenous to Steven Universe or to the, the world building of Steven Universe. But it's also a concept that comes up in the discussion of mounting. Or as it's known to us, the possession um, of ancestral spirits. Like, think about uh, in church when people catch the Holy Ghost. Their soul, the the soul of the person is is not displaced. It's really that the spirit of that being and the spirit that's mounting them, they become one being. So the erotic is about is about becoming one. It's about becoming one. It's really a journey. It's about becoming one with whatever it is that you are watering, that you are showing love to, whether that be a romantic relationship, whether that be a platonic relationship, a familiar relationship, a school, you know, or professional relationship. And guess what? We have hella, we have hella rituals for those things. We have rituals to sweeten your boss to you. <laughs> we have rituals. Hibiscus tea. Remember, listen, y'all. Remember I was talking about drinking hibiscus tea? That's actually something that's actually something that I do with my partner. Drinking tea. Something as simple as that. That's engaging in the force of the erotic. That's a ritual. It, it yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I encourage you to be, it's really about being intentional. It's a performance, definitely, definitely. It's sincere, it's dedicated, it's a committed, but it's still a performance nonetheless. <sighs> and I think the other ritual that I'm going to say, based upon um, Sean Gay's work, is to share your stories. Um, and her, there was a line that really stuck out to me. Of course, she, the most um, notable line by her is where there is a woman, there is magic. But I also like, and I've entitled the episode of this podcast after it, that you know a woman who is magic because she has a moon falling from her mouth. And <laughs> as Kyla Wazana Tompkins has said, the black mouth speaks, laughs, and eats in the face of the violent desires of white supremacy. In fact, white speech, laughter, and eating are conjoined as tropes of black cultural presence and resistance. And so, yeah, use food as a tool to nourish yourself symbolically and physically as well. Additionally, use your mouth, engage your mouth 
as a means to to share, to be a storyteller, to serve as a griot, to tell the the things that aren't pretty, the things that are ugly, the things that are musty, the things that stink. <laughs> Use your mouth to laugh, to to talk as I'm doing now, to tell your stories, to eat, to feed yourself and to feed others. Perform. That is what I have. That's all I have for for y'all today. I studied a lot through this. Um, I didn't talk in a way that was articulate. But I feel like if you was really listening, then you're going to walk away with something. And that's all I really have to say. Y'all be blessed.